Well, we're going to be in Luke 9 this morning, starting in verse 43. So if you want to turn there, Luke 9, 43, while you're turning. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be up on the screen behind me. But um, we'll start with a uh, camping story. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we, uh, our family went camping, and uh, my mother and father-in-law went with us. And um, my, my father-in-law, he took uh, one of my sons over to the, the playground equipment, which was at the campground, and, uh, and, and he began to play with another kid about his age. And um, uh, the, the parent of the, that other boy came over and, and called him back to the campsite. And before he left, the, the two boys uh, began to roll up their sleeves and, and uh, put, put the gun show on display and uh, compare muscles with one another. And my, my father-in-law, he was recounting uh, the story uh, to me. And it's humorous, but we all kind of recognize um, that's pretty normal, right? Like, we, we see this early on as, as kids grow up. The, the comparisons begin to happen, right? Uh, the competition, right? The, the, the measuring of things. And, and from an early stage, we begin uh, to ask the question, really, who is the greatest? Who's the greatest? And so in the passage that we're going to be in this morning, uh, this, this is a question that's asked. Um, it's answered by Jesus, and it's answered in, in such a way that it really, for all of us, leads to freedom. It leads to freedom. And so, um, if you will, read with me Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples... Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child, put him by his side, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. It's interesting uh, that uh, here the disciples are confronted with the majesty of God, the greatness of God on display, and then within just a few lines, they're arguing over which of them is the greatest. Which of them is the greatest? Do, do you know that, that God put the desire for greatness in all of us? That the reality is, is that we bear the image of God. We uh, were meant to show the world the greatness and the glory of God. Like, there is a part of, of the very fabric of, of what it means to be human that we do want to pursue greatness. And in and of itself, the pursuit of greatness is not wrong in and of itself. The reality is, 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 is when we pursue greatness, when we, when we compete, when we measure, there are some good positive things that come out of that. And kids, when, when they engage in sports, there's things that they learn from competition that they can learn nowhere else, like fair play, and they can learn things like honor, and they can even learn things like, like courage as they overcome like physical pain in order to achieve something. Like, there's, there's goodness in trying to prove our greatness to some extent. When we look at, at our world and we look at how we've tried to outdo one another in certain things, 
This outdoing one another has led to advances in, in science and medicine and technology. I mean, we're able to cure diseases and we're able to perform surgeries without some, cutting somebody open. I mean, within the last 120 years, we didn't fly and now we're flying all over the place. I mean, it was competition that put a person on the moon, right? There's a lot of good that can come out. Like, the, the reality is, is God has, has put this within, uh, within the fabric of what it means to be human to pursue greatness. But the question is, for whom do we pursue greatness? For whom? Because the reality is, is when, when we really zoom in on this, and when we really uh, examine our hearts, we can see that in this pursuit of greatness, there's this looming darkness. And there's this bondage and there's this captivity that seems to follow with it. And it goes all the way back to the garden. When our first parents were created, they were created in the image of God to be great with him. But along came a, a, a tempter who, who tempted them to believe that they could find a greatness apart from him. They could find a greatness without him. And since then, the, the human pursuit of greatness apart from God has led to tragedy after tragedy. You know, we think about that, that, that athlete who pursues greatness, right? Um, last week, um, a Reds pitcher, Hunter Green, pitched a one-hitter. And it was an amazing thing to see if you, if you could root for that, right? But on the other hand, there's, there's athletes who would go and, and they would turn to performance-enhancing drugs because they have to win so badly. We look at all these advancements in technology. Some of those advancements in technology have, have come about through war. And we've learned how to kill one another in new and creative ways all the time. This desire for greatness, if it's found apart from God, it, it's not good. And the, and the reality is we don't have to look out there to see it. We can see it right in here. Um, the week before we went on this camping trip, I was asked to participate in a career day at my son's school. And um, for 15 minutes, 10 times that morning, I presented to students from the first through the sixth grade about what I do. And I, what I do is, I'm a pastor, right? So the stereotype is I, I golf and I work one day a week. <laughs> so I'm trying to, to talk to these kids about about what it is that I do for a living. And the question that I got repeatedly is, how big is your church? From an eight-year-old, how big is your church? I hate this question. Why would an eight-year-old ask that question? Because their parents asked that question, right? And I hate this question um, because I get it often, but it's not the question, it's what the question does to me or what I allow the question to do to me. I allow that question to, to do something inside of me. See, um, when I consider the size, right, of the number of people that gather together on a Sunday morning in this building, this is, is, is greater than over 50% of the churches in America. And, and there's this wretched part of me that can actually take credit for that. There's this wretched part of me that can say that uh, to some degree I'm responsible for this and, 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 and that can lead me to arrogance, and I could pat myself on the back and say, well, we're better than most. But then there's this other part saying, ah, oh, but you haven't multiplied, you haven't planted. If you had a church of a thousand, then that'd be something. And so there's, there's arrogance on one side or there's despair on the other side. You see how wretched I am? See how sick? You need to know that I'm not somebody who has crossed 
this, this, this divide of sanctification and I've arrived, you need to know that I'm somebody who's walking this road of sanctification with you. But see, this, this reality is like, I don't think I'm alone. How many of you, if you were to be completely honest with yourself, completely honest with yourself, how many of you would say that from the time you, you rolled up into the parking lot until this moment right now, you've compared yourself to at least one other person? You come into this parking lot and you're, you're thinking about the car that you drove here and there's the car that somebody else drove here. And maybe that has something to do with your salary or maybe it has something to do with how, how wise you are. They're driving a truck with a big old V8 in this climate? Are you kidding? They should drive this Honda Civic that I've got. Like, well, there's, this, there's this comparison that's going on and it happens in the parking lot and all the way up here as we, we're looking at one another. And you arrive late and you're saying to yourself, why can we arrive on time? Oh, I wish my family arrived on time. They're on time. Compare one another to how we're dressed. We, can, we compare one another to how our kids are behaving. They showed up with somebody special. I came alone this morning. We compare all sorts of things. If you had a chance to talk to somebody before the gathering began, maybe you talked about your weeks and, and, and you talked about whose week was better. Some of us, what we actually talk about whose week was worse. Like, who, who had the roughest time? Who had the worst week? Who had, who had the difficult, most difficult time getting here? We even compare that. Like, we compare all sorts of things. There are measuring sticks for anything. From, from your yard to, to the, outkeep of, uh, the upkeep of your house to the cleanliness of it when you go and you visit somebody. I mean, we're, we're comparing bodies. We're comparing diets. We're comparing ha eating habits. I mean, we're comparing all sorts of things. Exercise habits, reading habits. How, how well-read are you? How well-educated are you? How hard-working are you? We compare anything and everything that you can possibly imagine. And we as Christians, we compare stuff that should never be compared kindness mercy love humility we compare humility I'm way humbler than that person <laughs> we do now let me ask you this how many of you are tired of it how many of you find yourself this morning you're, you're tired of the comparisons you're tired of the measuring you're tired of trying to prove yourself over and over and over again because there is no standard that you can finally accomplish. As soon as you, you find yourself to be the greatest person in the room, somebody else walks in the room. How many find yourself you're tired of comparison and, and you just wish, you just wish you could walk into a place and find that the work is done for you. You could find that, that the acceptance has been wrought for you, that you could find yourself in a place where you're completely loved and you're completely accepted. How many of us long for that? Let's take that in prayer. Let's just stop and pray. Heavenly Father, we need your grace. We need to be able to see that all of this striving for greatness trying to build a better name for ourselves, it's leaving us exhausted and empty and far from you. I pray this morning that, that one, you would help us to see the ways in which we compare ourselves to others. 
Two, you would help us to see that we need to compare ourselves only to you. And three, that we would be covered by your grace because we can't compare ourselves to you. And I pray that the outcome of this morning is worship. I pray that when we leave here today, it's not guilt and shame, but it's worship and gratitude and thanksgiving for who you are and what you've done. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I think that there are two places that we go to find freedom from the measuring. The first is isolation. I mean, think about it. Like, if, if you're tired of being compared to other people, get away from other people. In isolation, there's nobody else to compare yourself. But, but even there, I think we find that there is an other. There is another. There's, there's our past self, or there's our future self, or there's that fantasy self. And we're always comparing ourselves to that other self. And we can look in the mirror and we can say, well, I'm better than I used to be. Arrogance. Or despair, I'll never become what I need to be. And even in isolation, we can't find freedom from it. We can turn to the crowd and we can surround ourselves with people who we know we're better than. We can surround ourselves with people who, who, who we, can, we can say, I'm, I'm, I'm more educated than them, I make more money than them, I clean a better house than them, I exercise more than them, and I can surround myself with people that make me feel really good about myself. Arrogance. Or we can surround ourselves with people that we don't have to bring out the measuring stick because we already assume they're better than us. We don't even have to try. Despair. You see, wherever we go to find freedom from the measuring and the comparisons and, and the answers to the questions of greatness, it will lead to one of two places. It will lead to arrogance or it will lead to despair. Where can we go? So Jesus, in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, he's, he's going to address this question of greatness within his disciples and he's going to give them an answer. Now, the, the place where we're going to find freedom is actually found not in the words of Jesus, but actually the structure of how Luke puts this together. So we'll see that in a moment. But uh, look, begin uh, again with me at Luke 9, beginning in four, verse 43 again. It says, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So this sort of picks up where a story ends. Jesus, uh, last week, uh, Tristan talked about this. Jesus went on this mount of, of transfiguration with three of his disciples. He comes back down, and he finds that there's this, this, this father who has a son who is demon-possessed, and his disciples cannot cast the demons out. And so Jesus does. And the display causes people to be amazed. That's what we're reading here. They're amazed at the greatness of God on display. They're amazed. And then... Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and he says, in the midst of their amazement, I'm going to die. We're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Now this isn't the first time he said it. In, in verse 22, uh, earlier on in, in uh, Luke 9, it says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus has begun to tell them that this is going to happen. And he reminds them here again, and they don't get it. And they don't question it. They don't question it. But all of a sudden, here, you see this shift within the disciples. They're looking at Jesus, and they're amazed in, in, in the greatness of who he is, and they take their eyes off of Jesus, and they start looking at one another, and they start asking the question, which one of us is the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest? An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, this is a, actually a common theme throughout the, the Gospels. 
We, we see this over and over again. Um, Mark tells of, us, uh, of an instance where uh, James and John, they're brothers who follow Jesus, and they go to Jesus at one point and they say, when we come into your kingdom, can we sit on special thrones above all the other disciples? It seems like there's this constant competition between these 12 guys about who the greatest is. Now Luke frames it this way. Luke tells us about two instances where this happens. And it's, it's significant how he frames this. The first argument arises after Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, so Tristan talked about this last week. Three disciples go up on a mountain and Jesus sort of peels back his humanity, so to speak. He reveals the glory of God. He shows them the glory of God. And, and there they're confronted by the greatness of God in Jesus as he's glorified. Now their response to Jesus is worship. They wanna, they wanna build a place for worship. And they don't get it completely right, but they don't get it wrong either. They, they have this attitude of worship. And my hope, that's my hope for us today. I hope that we leave here with this attitude of worship. So they see the glory of God on display and they desire to worship. But just a few verses later, they come down from the mountain and they're arguing about who is greatest. Three of these guys have just seen Jesus in all of his glory and now are arguing about which one of them is greatest. And Luke is purposely framing it this way. There's another argument. Luke 22, they begin to argue about the same thing. This time, it's the night before Jesus is killed. The night before Jesus is killed, and here they are arguing about who the greatest is. And the next day, Jesus would go up another mount. And the greatness of God would be put on display again, but this time in humility. See, this is what Luke is doing. He's giving us two pictures of mountains. Two mounts, and on these mounts, the greatness of God is on display, one in glory and one in humility. And right in the middle, there's two arguments of people going back and forth, arguing about which of them is the greatest. And Luke is saying, look up. This is what greatness looks like. Look up. So Jesus gives us this, this answer. Look at verse uh, 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him beside, put him by his side, and <clears throat> he pauses. We pause. Jesus takes a child, puts him beside him. Now, uh, there's a, a contextual thing that we need to talk about here because we don't see children the same way that they saw children in that culture. We, in our culture, at least the born children, we revere. Uh, in our culture, our children are the things that we look to to glorify ourselves. Our children are meant to be our mirrors to the world of our greatness. And so we put a lot of time and energy into the development of our children and raising them up. We, at, in our culture, we idolize our children to a certain degree. And that's demonstrated in the way that we're, uh, uh, we helicopter parent and the, the way that we have to fight all, all of our children's battles and the ways that we have to protect them from every little thing. Like it, it's demonstrated in our culture that, that we, 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 we almost I, I idealize or I, I idolatry, uh, idolize our children. That's not so in this culture that, that uh, Luke is writing to. The culture that Luke is writing to, uh, a child had almost no value. Almost no value at all. Um, they were necessary, 
But until a child could actually produce something for their society, uh, contribute to the family, do something, they, they were just a body that took. They, they were just somebody who consumed the labors of the rest of the family. A child had very, very little value. In fact, um, in, in a household order, a slave had more value than a child did. So this is the context that Luke is writing to. So here's Jesus, and he's taking a child, he's putting the child next to him, the most insignificant human being, putting him next to him, and he says this. Whoever receives this child, in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you all is the one who is great. Now Jesus isn't saying, I want you uh, to accept this child. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to be like this child. Okay, I, I want you to be insignificant. I want you to have really no value except for the fact that you'll bear my name. I want you to be insignificant. I want you to be an insignificant consumer of what I will do for you. Be completely insignificant. That's what Jesus is saying. Now think about these apostles um, and, and they're beginning to understand, these disciples are beginning to understand their role. Here's this kingdom of God that they're, that's coming. They've been, they've been told to preach about this kingdom of God. Here's this kingdom of God that's coming, and, and, and here's this reunification of God to his people. And somehow they're involved in this. They're involved in the reconciliation of humanity back to God. And that's their role. So what, is the, what, what do they do? How do they help people get back to God? You, you think of maybe Peter, for example. How is he going to approach all of this? Well, I mean, he gets to heal people, he gets to cast out demons, he gets to, he gets to do all this, this awesome stuff. In other words, he gets to be great. And see, here's what the disciples are laboring under. We can be great, and, and the one who's the greatest among us will be the one who you know, furthers the kingdom the most. It's about being great, and the, and the greater we are, the more of a, a difference we can make in the world, the more of, a, of an impact we can have and bringing people into reconciliation with God. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not about making your name great. I want you to lose your name. I want you to be as insignificant as a child, and I want you to take my name. So you go, and if people accept you, not in your name, they accept you because of my name, then they accept me, then they accept the Father who sent me. Then reconciliation happens. What Jesus is saying is your name can't save anybody. Your name's not gonna make a difference. Your greatness is not gonna have the eternal impact. Your greatness is not gonna bring about reconciliation between humanity and God. It's my greatness. So lose your name, lose your greatness, become a child, and take my name. And when people accept you in my name, they accept me, and they accept the Father. It's interesting um, that uh, Paul talks about this a little bit in in a different light. In 1 Corinthians 1, He's he's writing a letter to a church that's really struggling with their comparisons with one another. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
There's a group of people in the Corinthian churches that are aligning themselves with Paul or with Cephas, that's uh, Peter's other name, or with a guy named Apollos, instead of aligning themselves with Jesus. And Paul's saying, don't follow me, follow Jesus. The name of Paul doesn't save you, the name of Jesus saves you. It's the name of Jesus that will unify you. It's the name of Jesus that will shape you. It's his name that matters. It's about becoming insignificant. Our greatness is found not in our name, but in the in owning the name of Jesus. Well, the disciples don't get this. And we know they don't, they don't get this because of what happens next, what they encounter next. There's, there's two results from when people um, try to be great apart from God. There's two results that happen when we try to make a, 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 name of, a, a great name for ourselves rather than a great name for God. And, and the first one is exclusion. Look at verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So, uh, first of all, notice the work that's being done. Here's an individual out there, and he's casting out demons. Demons are the enemy of God. They're bent on destruction. They're, they're, they're bent on, on lies and, and death. And, and, and here's a guy who's kicking them to the curb. Here's an individual who's going around and he's removing demons. He's freeing people. And he's not doing it in his own name. He's doing it in the name of Jesus. In other words, he's doing good work. He's doing something powerful and amazing in the name of Jesus. He's doing a good thing. And here's John saying, I told him to stop. Why? Because he doesn't follow along with us. John's not concerned about the name of Jesus. He's concerned about his own name. He's concerned about his own reputation. See, here's an individual who is following Jesus, but he's not following the same way that the disciples are following and so the disciples want to exclude. See, the truth is, is we exclude people that Jesus did not exclude. If there's an indictment that needs to be laid at the foot of the church, it's this. The reality is, is the name of Jesus, this name, if someone reveres it, if somebody worships it, if somebody lifts it up, if somebody recognizes this Jesus is the Son of God, born of a virgin, who lived a righteous life, who died an atoning death, who rose from the dead on, on our behalf, if, if there is somebody who follows this name of Jesus, and yet some of the th other things that they believe that, that don't really compare to what we believe, I mean, there's, there's the primary doctrine of what the gospel says, and then there's a bunch of secondary stuff that we argue about. And everything from the way the world is made to how the world is going to end, we find all sorts of arguments and debates. And we'll say to people, and we will exclude them, you may follow Jesus, but you don't follow Jesus the way that I follow Jesus. Why? Because we're not lifting up the name of Jesus. We're lifting up our own name. It leads to exclusion when we're about our own greatness. If, if New Community Church, if we're about the name New Community Church, then we'll exclude. And we'll exclude people who Jesus doesn't exclude. It leads to exclusion. The second thing that it leads to is judgment. 
when we exalt our own name apart from the name of Jesus, it results in judgment. Look at the next section, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, um, read that passage again. Picture the scene in your mind, okay? Uh, we, we've talked before about the Samaritans. They were, they were people who were looked down upon by the Jews. Jews would avoid them. They thought they were better than them. And so um, here's an instance where Jesus, he's traveling towards Jerusalem. Um, at this point in the book of Luke, it's all about going to Jerusalem. It's all about Jesus going to the cross. It's all about movement towards, towards that moment. And so Jesus has his fate set towards Jerusalem, and he's gonna go through this Samaritan town, and they don't want anything to do with him. They reject him. They don't want him there. And here's these 12 disciples, and then they're just indignant. Is it because they're not accepting of Jesus or because it, they're not accepting them? They're indignant. And here's John. And he is wanting re to reproduce Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he's wanting to do. And, and, and we don't see Jesus' response here. We don't see the nature of the rebuke, exactly what he says. And, and, and I imagine it's a lot less snarky than I would have it be. I mean, could you imagine like looking at John and be like, oh, yeah. You wanna rain down, you're just gonna call heaven and you're gonna rain down fire and you're gonna destroy this town. All right, John, go ahead. I'll just stand over here, you gotta, you know, make that call. Oh, wait, you can't because it's not your place to judge those people. You see, what's interesting about John is not only does he want them judged, he wants to be the hand that judges them. He wants to be the hand. And we don't see Jesus' response. But he rebukes them. And he moves on. Uh, Paul, um, in, uh, in Corinthians, again, says something that's, that's helpful um, in understanding all this. He, he writes this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside purge the evil person from among you. Now, the emphasis that Paul is talking about is the person who bears the name of Christ who is not living out the name of Christ, who is demeaning the name of Christ. And for those person, for that person who is a part of a church, if they're doing that, then they need to be confronted. And if they refuse to repent, then they need to be removed. Now, that's part of the point. The other part of the point, which is applicable for us, is that Paul makes the point, we are not to judge people outside of the church. That's for God to do. And the reality is, for us as Christians, people will reject you. They will treat you unfairly. They will not let you stay in their towns, so to speak. 
They'll reject you because of the name of Jesus. And you will feel indignant about that and you will desire for them to be judged. And you might even want to be the hand that judges them. And what God is saying is that's not your job. Because they're not rejecting your name, they're rejecting my name. He's the one who judges. And here's the deal. There's freedom to be had when we promote the name of Jesus over our own. And the freedom that's had is we get to stop excluding people that Jesus doesn't exclude. And we get to stop judging people that only Jesus has a right to judge. And there's an immense amount of freedom in recognizing that we allow him to be God. He's God. Now, I told you at the beginning that this was supposed to be about freedom. Where do we go to find freedom? Freedom from the, the measuring and, 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 and the comparing and freedom from, from all these questions about who is the greatest. And, and, and the place that we need to go to is Jesus. And this is how, how Luke sets it up. He intends that we compare ourselves not to one another, but to Jesus. The reality is, is these disciples are not supposed to be asking who's the greatest among us. Each of these disciples is supposed to be looking at Jesus and saying, who's the greatest? All of us are supposed to be looking at Jesus saying, who's the greatest? And that's why Luke orders it the way he does. Here's this mountain, and there's this, this glorifying experience where, where, where Jesus' glory is revealed to these disciples, and they see this on display, and they come down the mountain, and they forget the glory. They forget what they've seen, and they begin to argue with one another. They're not supposed to, to compare themselves to one another. They're supposed to look at Jesus. And the same thing happens in Luke 22, and they, they compare themselves again. And the next day, Jesus goes up that hill, and he dies for them. You see, we're supposed to compare ourselves to the greatness of Jesus and his glory and the greatness of Jesus and his humility. That's the place we go to. And so let's go there. Let's go there. Um, Would you go back uh, one slide, please? There. So I'm about to read to you Revelation 4. Okay, if you'll remember, three of these disciples, they were up on a mountaintop with Jesus and they saw his glory. And none of us have ever seen that before. And I'm willing to bet none of us have seen it now. Okay? But we will. John, the guy who's up on that mountain, the guy who um, is, is one of the ones arguing about who's the greatest, the guy who is saying, um, hey, we tried to stop somebody who was casting out demons, the same guy who's saying, hey, can I call down fire from heaven on these guys? This guy will one day grow up and become a very mature spiritual man of God, and he'll write this great re- letter this, this book of revelation in which God has shown him things of the future. And he gets to see the throne room of God and he describes it in Revelation 4. Now that picture is a human depiction of what somebody thinks this passage looks like. And so it's helpful for you. Look at that. If it's not helpful for you, just close your eyes while I read Revelation 4 to you. And I want you to picture yourself in this moment and in front of you is the throne of God. And here's where you make your comparison. Here's where you pull out all of your great stuff. Here's where you pull out all of your accomplishments and all the things that you are building your identity on. Here's where you pull them out and you compare them to what you hear right now. Revelation 4. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. 
And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. See, if you think that you're great, this is the place to go to and compare yourself to him. And if you want to find freedom from the comparisons, if you want to find freedom from, from the measuring and, and all of these, the, the, these things that, that happen between us, you want to find a place that's free of that, meditate on Revelation 4, see the throne of God and throw down all your greatness there. And be free. Be free. There's another place to go though. Compare yourself to the greatness of Jesus as displayed in his humility. And read Luke 22 and Luke 23. And go to that place in your mind's eye and see Jesus the night before he dies, calling out to God the Father, asking this cup of suffering being removed from him. And see him stand and go. See him bound. See him taken and judged for things he never did. See him struck on the face. See him taken to another emperor where he's stripped and he's beaten and the flesh flayed from his back through a whipping. See them put thorns in his skull. See him made to bury this wooden beam up a hill and nailed to it and stripped naked and raised up for the world to see. And watch him as he stares towards the sky looking for an answer from his father only to feel the abandonment of that moment. And then the weight of sin of the whole world ever committed against him coming down on him and crushing him and the wrath of God being poured out on him until he breathes his last breath. Like, look at the greatness of God and his humility because in that moment you were set free from sin. And you who were an enemy of God became his friend. Look at the greatness of God in that moment and then compare yourself to him. 
You see, in light of the greatness of God and his glory or in his humility, there is nothing that we have. There is nothing we are. There is nothing we can ever do that will ever compare that. And you're free. And you're free because of this. What Jesus did that day on that cross accomplishes everything you needed to accomplish. What he did that day makes you completely loved, completely acceptable, completely his, and the work is done. I'll begin to close with this. Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable about servants who are called to a master, and the master, in his grace, gives them a gift which they are to go and use for his glory. And two of them do it. They, they take this gift of, of grace, it's a, in the parable it's a, a monetary form, and they go and they do something with it, and the master calls them back to him, and, and with the ones who did what they were supposed to do with the grace that they had been given, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, Peter Scazzaro, in commenting on this, says this. This is the only affirmation that will ever truly satisfy your desire for recognition. The longing to be popular, to be loved and enjoyed and accepted is God-given, but it is unquenchable this side of heaven. Jesus wants us to know that God alone is the only deeply satisfying source of recognition. He knows that if the praise and notice of the world were given to us, we would still say it's too little. I think of the song from the greatest showman the woman sings it's never enough it's never enough Destin Kensrue he wrote a different song which I continually need to remind myself of and I'll read the lyrics to you he says though all the wealth of men was mine to squander and towers of ivory rose beneath my feet were places of pleasure mine to wander the sum of it would leave me incomplete though every soul would hold my name in honor and truest love was always by my side. My praises sung by grateful sons and daughters. My soul would never still be satisfied. Though I could live for all to lift them higher or spend the centuries seeking light within. Though I indulged my every dark desire, exhausting every avenue of sin. I could right all wrongs or ravage everything beneath the sun. It's not enough. It's not enough to make me whole. It's not enough. It never was. Awake my soul. If you're here this morning and you're tired, you're tired of the comparisons, you're tired of measuring, you're tired of becoming great, knowing that your greatness will vanish the next time somebody else walks into the room, that you're chasing after something that's fleeting, that is unattainable. Awake, my soul, he says. There is a place to go. There is one to turn to, one who would say, lay your name down and take up mine and be glorified in me. You were meant to be great. You were meant for glory. But you were meant for relationship with God and to find it in him. God is more than enough. 
And living for the greatness of God, we are living for something eternal while everything else is temporal. And living for the greatness of God, we're pointing the world around us to who will truly save them, set them free. What would it be like if we were a people who were an oasis? If we were a people who were deeply satisfied in the work of Jesus on our behalf, that we didn't compare ourselves with one another. What kind of people would we be if the world could experience and be exposed to that kind of peace and that kind of freedom? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to rest in the fact that the work is done, to know that you've done everything, that because of your Son, if we will bear his name, then we are more loved than we could ever imagine. We are accepted completely. The bonds and the chains come off. Holy Spirit, I pray now that uh, you would help us to see the ways that we compare ourselves to one another. That we would confess those and repent those to you. And that we would turn in faith. That we would embrace what you have done for us. Set us free. Set us free. And make us an oasis where people find freedom in you. In Jesus' name we pray.